even though we knew from the beginning what we had to do. We were merely putting off as long as possible a decision we knew we could not avoid. You know, eventually the moment of truth comes. The time when intentions and convictions have to be confirmed with a definite decision. And in our text for today, the moment of truth had come for Jesus. He'd already announced many times his intention to go to Jerusalem and to there face death. He knew what he had to do. He knew what he had come to earth to accomplish. Still there came that moment of truth when his intentions had to be confirmed with a final decision. And for Jesus, that time came in the garden, the night before his death. And there we find him praying, yielding, agonizing, and rising. We're studying in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus had just symbolically fulfilled the Passover in Jerusalem, in an upper room. There he took bread and wine, two basic elements of the Passover meal, and gave them new meaning. He said the bread was his body given for us. And the cup, his blood, poured out to establish the new covenant. In doing so, he made it clear that he would take the role of the central element of the meal, the Passover lamb, that he would, in fact, become the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. It was now time for Jesus to prepare himself to actually do it. So he left the city and went to a garden on the Mount of Olives. Now, Luke doesn't give us the name of the garden, but Matthew and Mark do. It was Gethsemane, and the word itself means oil press. It was a private olive grove on the slopes of the Mount of Olives to which Jesus often retired to get away from the crowds to refresh himself physically and spiritually. For the past week, he'd been teaching in the temple by day and spending his nights in the garden. And as to the garden, he heads on the last night of his life. As they had done all week, his disciples accompany him. At least 11 of them do. Judas had left in the middle of the meal to meet with the Jewish authorities. And, of course, he knew where Jesus would go after finishing the meal. So when they arrived, Jesus told the eleven to pray that they might not enter into temptation. He knew what they were about to face. 
He knew they were about to go through a time of real testing. So he encouraged them to pray. He wanted them to consciously stay connected to their Heavenly Father, even as it might appear that their lives were unraveling. He wanted them in prayer so they wouldn't be swept away by the temptations that would soon threaten to overwhelm them. He wanted them to tap into the strength that only God can give so they could face what they were about to face. But they weren't the only ones who would need to be in prayer. Jesus had some praying of his own to do and some yielding to do to his Father's will. Verses 41 and 2. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. Luke leaves out some of the detail that Matthew and Mark include. After arriving in the garden and telling the disciples to wait for him while he went to pray, he took Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden and then confided to them the extent of his grief. And he asked them to keep watch. Apparently, Jesus wanted the support of his closest friends, and he involved them as much as he could. But the final decision was his to be made alone. He withdrew from them the distance a stone could be thrown, and he knelt to pray. Mark says he fell to the ground. Matthew says he fell on his face. The point is that he did not assume the normal position of standing while addressing God. He was too overcome with emotion to stand. He fell on his knees and began pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father. Some of Jesus' prayers have been recorded for us, we think, in full. All we have here is a brief summary, perhaps overheard by his friends before they fell asleep. What they apparently did here was, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what lay ahead if he followed the plan. And he did not want to go through it. It's true that he was the Son of God, but he was also a man. And he didn't want to suffer and die at the hands of an angry mob. I think it's safe to say that Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. But there's some things we're called upon to do, even if we don't feel like it. And I'm afraid far too many of us let the way we feel be the determining factor in what we do. If we don't feel like coming to church on a particular Sunday, we don't. If we don't feel like serving in the nursery, we say, let someone else do it. If we don't feel like forgiving someone, we refuse to forgive. 
I'm sure we're all very thankful that Jesus didn't say, I don't feel like going to the cross. I'm going home. No, he didn't want to suffer and die on a cross. If God could remove the cup of suffering, if there was any other way, he wanted it. And he said so. He was free to express how he felt. He didn't hide his feelings thinking it might be inappropriate to really tell God how he felt. But in the end, he surrendered to his Father's will. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus concluded his prayer with what he taught us to include in ours. Thy will be done. Now, most of us do that. We've been taught to do that. But there's several ways to say, thy will be done. It can be said in just total resignation and in hopelessness. It can be said in utter defeat. Okay, I give up. It can be said in resentful surrender, in bitterness. Or it can be said in perfect trust, acknowledging faith and confidence in His will for us. And that is what Jesus was expressing. He was expressing confidence in His Father's will by yielding to it. Still, it wasn't easy. Yielding never is. It wasn't easy even for the Son of God to yield to His Father's will. And we miss the point of Gethsemane if we don't see the agony our Lord experienced there. Verses 43 and 44. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You know, Luke may have left out some details, but we have him to thank for these. He's the only one to tell of the angel. And he certainly paints the most graphic picture of Jesus' agony. This is the second time we're told an angel ministered to Jesus. The first being when angels ministered to him after his temptations in the wilderness. At the beginning of his ministry and at the close. And both times they came to strengthen him as he faced the setting or maintaining of the course of his ministry. On both occasions, Satan was tempting him to forsake the cross. In the wilderness, Satan offered him three alternatives to the cross. And here he prayed that if there was any other way, he might be spared the cross. Mark records him crying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. If there was any other way, he wanted it. 
but he knew there wasn't. And so he continued, yet not my will, but thine be done. In the end, he yielded to the plan he and the Father had lain out from the beginning of time. He surrendered to the cross. Obviously, that wasn't easy. And even after yielding, he was in agony. The word used to describe what he was going through is used only here in the entire Bible. And it pictures someone in severe emotional strain and anguish, struggling with great fear he contemplated the consequences of his decision, Jesus was in deepest agony. But why? You know, we all have to face death. And death on a cross was undeniably horrible. But when Peter would face death on a cross, history doesn't record him being in agony over the prospects. In fact, his only concern was that he wasn't worthy to die, as did his Savior. And he requested that he be crucified upside down. So why the abject horror on Jesus' part? Could it be that he was fearing something more than death? Even death on a cross. Indeed. He was. He was fearing the cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew the full wrath of God against sin would have to fall on Him. He wasn't just dying at the hand of men. As the Lamb of God, He was carrying the load of every man's sin. And He knew the consequences of such. He knew that He would have to be forsaken by His Father, cut off from the other persons of the Godhead. That sin would break the unity He had enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit from before the beginning of time. He would suffer not only physical death, but spiritual separation from everything that is good and holy. And that was something to fear. And Jesus agonized over the consequences of his decision. He broke into a sweat as he thought about being separated from his father even if only for a time. Luke says his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Now, he doesn't say it became blood, but like drops of blood. Sweat fell from him like blood from a wound. The salvation of the world hung in the balance while Jesus literally sweated out. And in reality, this was the climax 
of his life. The defining moment of his life took place in Gethsemane even more than on Golgotha. He didn't drink the cup in Gethsemane, but it was there that he consented to drink it. The hardest part was over. The decision was made. Now he would be able to rise in peace and carry it out. Verse 45. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, once the decision had been made and the consequences accepted, Jesus could rise from prayer with a sense of peace. He was at peace with himself and with God. The decision had been made, and he knew it was right. When he rose from prayer, he went to his disciples and found them sleeping, as he had found them twice before, when looking to them for support after the first and second hours of prayer. Again, he was disappointed with them, but their eyes were heavy. And while the spirit was willing, he recognized the flesh was weak. And Luke compassionately tells us they were sleeping from sorrow. No doubt they had followed his initial instruction to pray that they might not enter into temptation. But they had fallen asleep before adequately preparing themselves for what lay ahead. So unlike Jesus... They couldn't rise from prayer in peace. But they had to rise anyway. And like the disciples, we must often rise from prayer before we are at peace about everything. So we keep on praying. After their failure, Jesus told them again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He knew that they hadn't won the battle, nor found the peace that he had found in prayer. In fact, they weren't even ready to face the temptation to flee that would come soon, let alone the many trials and temptations they would have to face in the future. So, like us, they would have to continue in prayer. You know, Jesus knew what the future held for him. He simply had to make himself ready to face it. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. So we keep on praying that we not enter into temptation, that we not yield to it nor be sucked into it. And while we're not in a position today to make all the hard decisions we'll be called upon to make in the future, we can decide now 
to yield to God's will. And His will for us and our lives has been made known in His Word. It's His will that we respond to His grace and forgiveness with lives that honor Him. It's His will that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's His will that we not be conformed to the world. It's His will that we walk with Him by faith. And it's His will that like Jesus, we express our desires and our fears to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And in prayer, surrender our will to His. Let's do that again as we stand.